This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Hello and welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues, where we'll be exploring the findings from our 2022 Wealth Management Investment Survey. I'm Amit Popat, Head of Wealth Management for Europe and IMETA, and I'll be your host for this episode, where we'll be exploring the key findings behind the business priorities for wealth managers. I'm very pleased to have joining me today my colleague Marika Daru, a Senior Client Director within Mercer, and Urs Bolt, an industry expert who has 30 years of industry experience in wealth management and wealth tech. So welcome, Marika and Urs, and it's great to have you to join me. Thank you, Marika, maybe I could start with you, if I may. Um, With the challenging period ahead for wealth managers, we asked our respondents to identify really their key business priorities for growth over the coming years. Now, we know there's going to be potential difficulties on on meeting client-specific investment objectives uh, with the returns expected to be lower over the coming years. But actually, 78%, so a huge majority indicated that their focus will very much be on the client experience, and that's their primary area of development in the next couple of years. I mean, with your experience of dealing with clients, you know, how are wealth managers in practice looking to improve the client experience? Yeah, I know it's such a challenging environment for everybody right now, for clients, for their wealth managers, for providers of products, which makes it even more important to focus exactly on that client experience. So servicing clients is is a people business. And the one thing that hasn't changed is proximity to clients, close relationship with clients and ensuring that the experience of the client is overall a positive one. Now, what has changed is the expectations of clients. Clients expect to be brought global opportunities. They expect diversification in opportunities, and while looking carefully at the risks and the monitoring of those risks within their exposure. So with all this delivered through an improved digital experience. So what's key to the clients is proximity, frequency, explanation. So the proximity because clients want to engage more face-to-face. They want to do that more frequent, but they also want that to be much more educational They expect more personalized, transparent information on their portfolios, among other things. So that helps clients to stay invested through those more difficult cycles that we're experiencing right now. The perennial challenge with clients has always been not to overreact to market corrections. So that proximity, education and frequency of interaction will really help understanding their their longer term objectives. So, Marika, thank you for that. Looking at the survey and 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 you know behind that seventy eight percent fees in ESG came in second and third as priorities and in the current environment I mean does does that really surprise you that they came in second and third you know fees are a certainty and we talked about future investment returns being challenges and we're in the midst of a transition when it comes to ESG so 
does it surprise you that they were second and third? No, not at all. In our experience, we see clients negotiating harder on fees. Exactly as you say, in that lower return world, wealth managers are looking to manage their fees better, reduce costs to their end clients, and also we're obviously also becoming more, more fee sensitive. So for many wealth managers, there is a long tail of providers and funds, and they're looking to consolidate those lists, rationalize it, leverage their buying power better. Sometimes this is done internally, but more and more we see cooperation between firms to have that greater scale, greater buying power, leverage that to reduce fees. So that scale and that strong buying power also translates then into what we talked about earlier, that better support through educational materials and and kind of support that client experience. Now, your second point on or the second finding on ESG, it is certain that the demand has accelerated rapidly. But at the same time, we see wealth managers taking a much more critical lens on products in the market, given the increased concern about greenwashing. So associated with that is an increased demand for more reporting, more metrics, more measurement around ESG, considerations taken within the overall portfolio. So we're all familiar with some of the issues around greenwashing and the heightened sensitivity to that. But increasingly, businesses are looking to collaborate with external entities to support them to meet those kind of regulatory obligations. For example, we can talk about it more, but that whole client reporting requirement around Article 8 SFDR funds. Marika, that, that's very interesting. And I'd, like, I'd love to get your perspective on, on the same issue of, of client experience. And you know, clearly, you've got great experience in the wealth management industry, but also from the, the development of technology that is being that we're seeing in the market to engage clients. So it, it'd be great to get your perspective on, on what developments you're seeing to really engage and improve that client experience. Yes, I mean, there's several trends which now come together. The ones mentioned by Marike from the demand side and the other one is that we look at platform business models so driven by platforms comes together to ecosystems for customers which are used now to fintechs digital banking experiences and there are dozens of them in England we have now a dozen alone in Switzerland uh, to benefit so customers again have higher expectations and the times are very challenging, as we know. So what I see now is that you can actually combine uh, technical, technological capabilities together with uh, the skills uh, of the advisors. And because you need to be much more um, reactive faster, you can actually combine that and integrate it into a hybrid experience. So customer engagement, uh, and interaction um, can now benefit from the experiences which we already have in other segments uh, because wealth management uh, typically, but also asset management more in a B2B space is lacking a bit in terms of deploying these. But in the since uh, the corona uh, crisis, we saw now a very fast deployment of new capabilities in the private banking space and wealth management. 
and you see that uh, that you can use tools like uh, the, the the sessions here on Zoom, but also MS Teams, but then there are other capabilities which really allow you to co-browse, for instance, with a customer when it comes to more complex solutions, which I also experienced uh, in my uh, day-to-day work. And then you can actually, collab- in a collaborative manner, go through quite complex topics and maybe even co-work on the same screen, literally, and create a very uh, compelling customer experience, which you couldn't do when you're in a meeting room because you're not sitting uh, shoulder to shoulder in a meeting room with your maybe most important customer. Um, I think that might <laughs> might go too far, but in screen to screen, that's possible. And then do really uh, assure um, customer I mean, the service quality, also the regulatory requirements, uh, the, you need digital support for this. I think every um, top client advisor appreciates that these days. For, for instance, suitability, appropriateness, um, or already starting before a customer is onboarded to do your automated identif- uh, identity verification, have a complete end-to-end process for onboarding. And then when it comes to advisory, if you have new products, you need a top uh, onboarding experience for these products because you might need to fill out several forms to comply with the regulatory requirements and you don't always want to have a stack of paper in front of you. Again, you can do that in a much better way. So there's a lot which um, is already available and we see these trends as well. We might get to that later when it comes to complex uh, complex investment solutions like private market assets, etc. There's clearly a trend now towards platform business models. Uh, so you mentioned the uh, the regulatory challenges you mentioned about onboarding and suitability. And Marika, you mentioned uh, SFDR. So um, I think what was interesting also out of the survey was actually two of the major threats that were highlighted were, in fact, regulatory challenges. And in fact, the free and margin pressure, that I think, Marika, you mentioned already. And I think over 50 percent of respondents highlighted those as their primary challenges. Uh, maybe I could start with you, Urs, on this one. I mean, what types of solutions or approaches are you seeing uh, to address these challenges? You mentioned about suitability, et cetera, as, as an onboarding challenge and technology behind that, but thinking about other aspects of regulatory challenges and fee pressures, what else are you seeing in the market? Yeah, I mean, be, being from Switzerland, we just now will have a new, um, let's say certification process now ongoing by 1st of January 23, all um, independent wealth advisors or wealth managers will need to be FINMA compliant, the Swiss regulator. And there's still hundreds out there which are not yet uh, um, certified. So it will, it, it will be quite the shift in the market, but I also know from others, uh, from other markets, that um, the regulatory challenge um, needs to be taken seriously. So there is a lot of regulatory technology, so-called RegTech out there, which can be used. But for most wealth managers, especially smaller ones or independent uh, wealth managers, they usually want an integrated solution. But that's something which can be dealt with. I think other aspects is that because of the higher demands also from the regulat- from the regulators, that um, 
many um, wealth advisors and managers will have to rethink how they actually offer high quality uh, investment advice. And also for the demand, which we just talked about before, like private markets, this is something which you don't just have off the shelf. It's not the standard service, but now you see uh, with by using technology and applying platform business models that you can actually integrate it into the advisory experience. And I think that will be the next level of kind of insourcing or rather the other way, outsourcing some capabilities, but integrated into your advisory experience as a wealth manager. And that's obviously where you at Mercer Investments can offer a lot of solutions and professional um, services across uh, the globe, which which is definitely needed. And I believe the, the private banks, wealth managers, they also have higher demand in terms of what is their strategy, you know, What's their business plan, their roadmap, where do you want to go? What's their positioning? Are they um, client-focused, customer-focused, and use services from providers? Or are they themselves, uh, let's say, a, a, an investment manager um, providing these products? Playing both depending on size, markets, positioning towards which clients might be difficult. So you might need to decide what's your primary focus. Uh, so you raise a very interesting point, actually, that we're seeing as well, I think, particularly around uh, private banks or wealth managers defining really their value proposition and then thinking about all the other services that they have to provide and how best to deliver those services. So, you know, in traditional terms, there used to be end-to-end manufacturing and delivery. And at least in our conversations, we're finding that there is a question now, what is the value, our value proposition? Where can we add value? And what are the other services that we need to deliver to our clients? And how best can we source that? And maybe, Marika, this is a good question for you to think about, or, or your response would be interesting. I mean, nearly two-thirds of our respondents use third-party providers to support them in, for example, research in the research process. I mean, what's the main drivers that you've seen behind that that sort of use of external skills and expertise in the research process? Yeah, no, I'm not at all surprised by those results. We've seen such a strong and growing demand for research support among other uh, investment needs, of course, but in particular, those smaller and medium-sized wealth managers. For many firms, just the point you made, they are reviewing their businesses. They want to focus on what is their key strength and what do their clients ultimately value most and looking then to insource other services that are required to deliver the proposition to the client, but they might not need to own. So in truth, we work along large very large firms, the global largest private banks, as well as the small and medium firms in in the world. And their engagement models will differ depending on their in-house resources, their in-house expertise, and what external support they might want to consider, all with the objective of being more efficient and ultimately reduce some of the ongoing fixed costs. So organizations tend to leverage that in our case, second opinion, expertise around investment due diligence or could be ESG to bring ideas faster into client portfolios. Or what we see a lot as well is assessing the operational risks around third-party asset managers. That's another area that we there's a lot of demand for that. So the majority of wealth managers are 
developing more nuanced asset allocation models that help diversify further their portfolios, which leads them then to need uh, an explicit need to find those niche thematic regional strategies. And we see that across traditional asset classes. We see that across hedge funds. We see that across private markets to tie in with what Urs just said. So for many firms, hiring more people for that broader diversification is not scalable. It's far too costly. So which emphasizes that need to find a partnership with firms that can bring that global regional expertise and enhance their investment proposition that way. And else, in, in your 30 years of experience, you know, you've seen many houses at different stages of growth. I mean, from your experience, are there any specific trends that you've observed? I mean, Marika touched about in-house versus third party versus outsourcing and, and trying to find that right mix. What, what's your experience as you've seen the, the, the market evolve the last few years? Yeah, like 20, 25 years ago, some private banks started to outsource the operations. So they basically had the same core banking system etc but they used then a service provider who did the payments for it the security administration all that stuff i think that time comes to end to an end so what we talk about more now is actually to use um platform software technology which you can use as a service and you have direct access to this and you automate the processes so i think what what's changing and you still see it it's very uh, dominant now the way uh, most service providers work, like investment managers, you need an advisor. It's highly complex, these whole structures around, especially the alternative space, but even in the, let's say, liquid or um, yeah, the liquid asset space. So I think in the, in the future, there will be much more uh, platform oriented model where people can collaborate quite seamlessly. So when you look at the possibility technology-wise, we already have it in place. When you look at distributed ledger technology, you can basically look at the same ledger from different uh, viewpoints. So this is just a knowledge that will not come next year or in two years. But when you look at the way you can actually digitalize uh, assets, in private markets, whether it's debt instruments or anything, it will become much more, it will become hyper-efficient and productive, but the challenge will now be the transition towards that. So when we look forward into, let's say, five to 10 years, now you assume you have a central bank digital currency, which will be used to be the cash side to pay for these assets. You have smart contracts, which can basically reflect anything you have into in such assets. And the same, of course, for the standard instruments listed at the stock exchange, you will definitely be able to increase productivity, in my view, by a factor, which with the current outsourcing models, you can't, which developed over the last 20, 30 years. But today's, let's say, fourth generation core banking systems applications, connect them into uh, digital currencies, truly digital currencies. You can even stream money today. It's already possible. This technology is already around. So this is like fast forward. I think there will be a lot of change ahead and it will be very exciting to see. 
And the other thing what we currently see is because of the valuation drop of these big techs, but also the wealth tech, fintech space for the incumbents, it's a great opportunity, in my view, now to start look around for great talents. If you want to build your own platform, but you will also be able to benefit if you have the, let's say, the investment, uh, the budgets to actually even buy wealth tax and fintechs and integrate them into your um, environment today. So for the smaller, medium-sized players, independent wealth advisors, that will mean there will be much more technology as a service advice or private uh, or wealth advice as a service coming in the future. And that will, of course, also be connected with the investment solutions that I think is coming in. Now it's changing. You know, you see, you see the stock markets can look at the index. And the other thing is that, of course, because of the challenging times, which Marike mentioned, there is now a much bigger demand for top advice because no one of us might have experienced what's coming now because in the middle of the storm, I think the financial crisis um, 14 years ago was will not be comparable after all, but maybe I'm too pessimistic, mm-hmm. but definitely clear is you need a lot of advice. Many people, uh, especially younger ones, invest by themselves. They now got maybe wiped out, stopped trading and they they recover quickly, but they need better solutions now, advice solutions or even managed solutions. So that it's definitely an opportunity for a lot of incumbent firms which focus on the customer segments or might want to expand them. Marika, thank you very much for sharing your, your experience and also, I think, very importantly, your client insights. I think that really, really is very important. Um, I'd like to thank you for listening uh to this today um if you liked listening to this episode please subscribe and leave a review Uh, and for more information reach out to your local mercer representative or email us at ctci at mercer.com thank you very much thank you thank you for listening today we'll be back soon my colleague cara williams and other special guests to explore the key findings on sustainability and more broadly esg I'm Kara Williams, Global Head of ESG and Sustainability for Mercer, and very excited to be able to continue the conversation about the results of our wealth management survey with our two colleagues, um, Angelika Dellen from um, our uh, Austrian office, who is European Impact Investment Leader, as well as Luke Fitzgerald, who's Head of Wealth Management for Pacific. Um, in the interest of time, I think we should just jump right in into some of the findings that I found particularly interesting. Um and I think one thing that everybody would probably assume is that uh, client demand has has increased overall for ESG investments over the past um, over the past years, but significantly over the last year. Luke, do you have any thoughts on why this is? Thank you, Kara. Yes, and and I, th- I think what we're noticing is there's a lot of sort of macro impacts coming in on clients at the moment, be it um, climate change, adverse weather events in some of our regions of operation, but equally some of the challenges in, say, Europe around um, the Ukraine and, and energy shortages. Uh, in, in our region, we see, again, adverse weather events, um, challenges to people's livelihood, challenges to people's housing, and, and driven by climatic change. So it's driven it's driven 
challenges at both the, the investor level but also at the intermediary level, so the provider. Mm, interesting. So you you mentioned you know, almost the, the the risk of of not investing um, in, in sort of ESG and sustainability. But um, you know, I think one thing that was quite interesting is the fact that um, only twenty percent of the respondents selected actually view that um, you know that act, generating active returns is one of the top reasons for strengthening their exposure to ESG investments. So as if the the wider population is actually only thinking about ESG as a risk mitigator rather than an investment opportunity. Angelica, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. I mean, if you look on the ESG and the perception of the market of ESG, it uh, completely confirms the result of the survey. So ESG is really seen as a tool uh, risk. So uh, you, it's providing you an additional risk understanding of the companies and funds you're investing in. So if you have ESG integration as one of your tools for your ESG assessment, you have a focus on companies, operation and processes. And that's why um, I fully agree with the perspective of the survey. So it's seen more as a risk understanding uh, measure uh, rather than a return enhancer right now. Interesting. Interesting. And, you know, Luke, when asked um, why their clients want to incorporate ESG into their portfolios, most respondents say it's in response to changing societal sentiment and to minimize reputational risk, which you know, almost alludes to the fact that this is a less of a of a, of a genuine call to action and, and more of a, um, you know, an investment and, and positive return um, opportunity. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Kari. I think as I reflect on this, it's almost, it's sort of not polar opposites, but it certainly sits at, at two ends of the spectrum. And I wonder if um, at one end, it's a, it's a client sentiment, it's it's driven by wanting to do the right thing. And at the other end, it is, and, and rightly so around the, you know, the custodians um, and the guardians of our, of our capital, is it's around protecting that capital and the sort of things that need to be considered in order to do that. And I think, for some years, we would have seen um, at an individual level, some of those guardians of the capital would 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 have a belief on ESG, but now that's baked into everything they do. It's baked into the way the organisation needs to report to both regulators and shareholders. And, and I think that's a driver at that end. At the other end, at the client end, the driver is to do the right thing for, for those that will ultimately succeed, the, the, the heirs, the, the children, the grandchildren. Um, and I think we're seeing an emerging trend in some investors that there's a real opportunity. And I, and I, and I allude to sort of the family offices and the high net worth investors where there's an opportunity out there to pick up on trends and look at enhanced returns uh, in the short term before, before trends follow that, that sort of sentiment. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I, one thing that, you know, I think we, we keep seeing is the fact that, um, you know, ESG is being equated to, quote unquote, doing the right thing. Um, and, you know, Angelica's focus is, is, is very specifically on impact, right? So that you, you can say and argue that ESG and impact are actually quite different things, right? So, um, you know, impact is, quote unquote, doing the right thing and trying to make a very specific e- impact, whereas ESG is, 
could be really more something that's um, about making a, a, a good investment approach, right, and, and good investment acumen. Um, and I think it's interesting that, you know, if we say in, in the survey, the industry and its clients, CESG um, investing predominantly is a vehicle through which they can do the right thing. Um, and yet at the same time, um, they have to be convinced of the investment benefits of the approach as if they're sacrificing um, return by investing in ESG. Angelica, maybe, you know, given, given specifically the way that you make an impact, right, and you help clients make an impact. It'd be really interesting to hear your views on this. Uh, thanks, Kara. I found the result very interesting because I think that, uh, that there is a clear difference uh, between the views from uh, high net worth um, and private um, uh, wealth when it comes to why ESG and what are the main motivators. Just to give you an example, if you look at the pension funds and insurance companies, the main drivers are regulatory driven. So there is not really, you know, the, I would say the main motivation, like doing the right thing. It's, uh, I have to do so. And the second one uh, is uh, the reputation risk, uh, which is once again aligned with our survey. Uh, for me, doing the right thing is the first part of impact, of course, because what does it mean? It means that you are considering the results of your investment, the outcome, what you're trying to achieve. And from an impact point of view, or let's say broader, the goals we are setting with the SDGs, I think um, this will lead um, uh, earlier to a mindset change uh, rather than just following, you know, any regulatory driven changes. So I found that fact very interesting. And I agree with Luke, you know, it's about, it's not only about what I'm doing now. It's also thinking about the next generations, about, you know, responsibility for people and planet. So I found that um, a quite interesting uh, result. I did not expect that one. I was also somehow thinking that they might are uh, considering, you know, the risk, of course, but also reputation. Uh, not only, you know, what companies uh, are having uh, on hidden risk uh, for, of non-financial data. So a very interesting result. And uh, that keeps me a little bit more hopeful that uh, in future, more people will turn to impact and get the next step about, you know, measure the result of my investments and the outcome of uh, where my money is going to. Yeah. And, then, and Luke, if you wouldn't mind just adding to, to the, some of those thoughts, maybe um, about ESG almost as a return sacrifice, um, it, I'd, I'd be keen to, to hear your, your views on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when um, I have to say when the, when the discussion started in um, in the ESG field, uh, that was the very beginning that everybody was thinking you will lose performance. But we know uh, at the latest, you know, 10, 20 years ago that now it's not true. So you are just having additional risk understanding, but you're not having less performance uh, just because you're doing ESG. Super. And, and Luke, Luke, what about in the Pacific? You know, I, I wonder if that's the next movement is that, is that, uh, Maybe at Mercer as a, as a sort of an industry participant, maybe our role changes to educating clients that actually it's not a, it, it doesn't produce a return downside. In fact, it produces a return upside, and uh, and I think that's probably the, the 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 big the next frontier we need to cross. And I think the numbers in the survey came out strongly in support of that 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 theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what, what's almost ironic is that um, you know, as a result of, of the it, the results of the survey, that climate change was voted the you know, second biggest investment opportunity amongst respondents over the next two years, um, and that was all regions, right? So um, I, I find that response is almost contradictory to, to some of this thing. You know, that it's a you know an investment sacrifice, but it's a, the biggest um, opportunity. Luke, did you, you want to add? Quite. Maybe? Isn't it interesting that people are now talking about it as an opportunity? And not a risk 
and, and so I think you know our, our initial job of, of sort of fifteen years of, of hard hard toil almost has been done. You know, we've convinced people now that it's important. Now, now let's look at it as an opportunity. The, the risk discussion has, has fallen away. I think that's baked in. It's still a consideration. And, and one of the challenges is for investors is um, is getting data to, to sort of monitor the fact that that risk is being managed and that is that is in fact you know being baked in. Um, but now now we we're running towards the opportunity, and that's that's really encouraging because it, it becomes more mainstream and, and an easier conversation for clients. Yeah. Yeah, Angelica, how, how about you? Is there any thoughts on, on that? I mean, I fully agree with Luke. I'm super happy to see that uh, uh, climate uh, uh, change and, you know, that it's leading to um, the way, uh, what opportunities are we able to get out of there? And if you look at infrastructure or technology, I think there is a whole set of huge opportunities. Uh, my only wish would be that we push a little bit harder so that uh, we move faster in order to make sure, sure that we're not only missing some opportunities, but that the change we need is coming sooner uh, because um, the time is a bit playing against us. But uh, I agree fully with Luke. So it's the first time we see that people are seeing it really as an opportunity, which is a huge move in the market. Super. Luke, do, do you want to add? I want to build on that. I think as we run towards that opportunity where we've traditionally looked at advice around a diversified portfolio, I wonder if our advice moves towards being around a diversified thematic, you know, if it's water security, if it's if it's um, energy production, if it's, you know, there's a number of um, themes that clients are asking us about and, and want to pursue because this becomes not so much, whilst for their retirement savings, this is now baked in, as I alluded to earlier. I wonder for the discretionary um, sort of capital enhancing uh, pool of pool of um, capital that they can that they can move towards that thematic type investing. So that's one of the big challenges for us to build a diversified um, portfolio around a theme across you know maybe four, five, six, seven, eight different asset classes. So that's the exciting bit as we look forward as, as sort of Mercer's role as a participant over the sort of next five to ten years. And I think it's an interesting idea as well, because, you know, in the world of impact versus ESG, you know, ESG, again, is, you know, really more inputs into the investment decision-making process, right? So as you make a decision to, you know, or portfolio managers making a decision to invest in a certain corporation or not, they're looking at whether or not there's sort of, you know, good viable reasons for that corporation to succeed long-term. Whereas impacts, you know, you're making, you know, a definitive change and, and trying to improve something. Historically, impact has been really left to the ultra-wealthy, Right, as an opportunity. And I guess, you know, Luke, you just touched on, um, you know, the, the opportunity to build out funds, right? So bringing that down into retail. And, you know, do you have any, any thoughts on, on sort of the emergence of, of, you know, potential impact, um, for, for the retail investor? Yeah, I do. Thanks, Kara. I think one of the things we see in, in a digitally connected to world that, um, product and investment opportunities can find clients very quickly now. And some of them occasionally feel a little lost that it's a sort of a singular opportunity that they need to consider. And, and, and it's one that I suppose they hold, they wholesomely support, but should it be paired up with, with a sort of more of a, more of a diversified approach um, to sort of risk mitigate that, that singular opportunity. 
and, and as I say, I think that's the that's the hole in, in certainly our industry in this region at the moment and potentially globally is how do I pair up that opportunity with others? And uh, and, and so again, I think that's probably the the big mover that we'll, we'll need to to run towards over the the very short to medium term. And Angelica, have you been seeing opportunities for the retail investor and in, in you know in impact and making impact investments that, that allow them the opportunity to diversify the way that they need to and to, to make you know smaller amounts in in, in their um, in those investments? Mm-hmm. I mean, we just see from a, if I look at the European region, um, we have of course the taxonomy and SFDR regulation, meaning with Article Nine, I'm quite close to impact. And what impact makes really attractive is the storytelling. If you take climate change, you know, climate change will have an impact on your work, life, uh, resources, so your daily life, whatever you need, uh, it will have an impact. And if you have, uh, if you're talking to a private banking or your bank or your foundation, um, you have have a story to tell. So what are you trying to fight against? What are you trying to improve? Is it in you know, reducing emissions? Is it providing education? Is it improving the water uh, access? So there's a lot of um, stories to be t- uh, told to clients and it's more visible. So I think um, it started a bit in Europe already about you know, retail uh, clients addressing, they're asking um, their uh, relationship managers about, is it really uh, sustainable and do I see the impact of my investment and i think i agree with luke it's nothing uh, it's still a bit niche of course but it will be grow i've been growing over the next year so i expect to see uh, raising numbers and uh, the amount on impact uh, also from retail clients no, to- totally agree um well i mean i think I, I think unfortunately we're probably close close to the end of our time here but um i think the the, the most important thing that we have off the back of this of the survey is the fact that it's leading to really interesting conversations and angelica you mentioned the stories right that this is clearly an area where there is a lot of opportunity for stories um for for people to be telling with their clients and to guide their clients into making you know good um good investment decisions as they allocate to to, to strategies. So with that, I really want to thank both of you for, for your thoughts on, on the subject and, and for the and, and on the survey as well. And um, and thank you every all of our listeners for, for tuning in today. <laughs>